What's happening, everyone? We are back. Just another sports podcast. Greg Swatek, Josh Smith. Here Hello. With you. And uh, we appreciate everyone's patience as uh, we deal with the busy time on our sports calendar. That it's made it difficult to get in here and record, um, but certainly a lot to talk about this week. No shortage of topics. It's a shame we weren't able to to, to get on uh, last week. Um, but uh, over the past couple of weeks, Josh, it's become clear to me anyway that, that the Baltimore Ravens are are, are the best team. Uh, in, in the NFL, and, and Lamar Jackson looks like um, the front runner for for MVP. Uh, not being Ravens fans, it might it might pain us to say that, but 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 it's it, absolutely it, true, though. You're right. Yeah, and uh, we think this episode will be worth the wait because our guest this week is uh, Jonas Schaefer of the Baltimore Sun. He's he's the Ravens beat writer for the Baltimore Sun, and uh, Jonas, we appreciate you you, you coming on, man. Uh, th- thanks thanks for doing this. Sure thing, guys. Thanks for having me. Yep, and uh, I, I got to admit it, uh, Jonas. I, I was dead wrong about the Ravens. I, I did not see them uh, playing to this level. Uh, I, I doubted Lamar Jackson could become the quarterback that he's uh, he's apparently become. Just w- w- where are you with, with with this team and with Jackson? And, and how surprised are you that that we're seeing what we're seeing on a, on a weekly basis? Well, you know, from the perspective of a journalist, I'm sure you guys can appreciate it. <laughs> it it's nice to have a team that is just compelling and interesting week in and week out you know I, I grew up a, a Redskins fan and obviously there are, it, it can be kind of interesting to find storylines among you know the, the the wreckage of a season like theirs but I'd much rather you know cover a team like this Ravens team that is just has such a compelling quarterback in Lamar Jackson you know a lot of interesting guys on defense with uh, people like Earl Thomas Marcus Peters and I mean, the fact that they're blowing these teams out obviously makes it a little bit easier to write on deadline. So for that, I'm <laughs> definitely appreciative. But, I mean, it's it's just a, it's a very fun team to cover. Uh, you know, last year was a bit of a, a bit of a wild ride with Joe Flacco going down midseason with a injury that we weren't really sure the extent of or severity of, but turned out to be a hip injury that was just you know, knocked out for about a month. But that was really all it took for not only Lamar to – to take that starting job and, and not lose it, but for them to basically flip the script of how they did things on offense, going from a pretty pass-heavy team to a team that run the ball, that ran the ball, you know, more than 60% at the time, which was just a historic rate, and they did it well enough. They had a great defense, and um, you know, obviously the the season ended in uh, with a lot of introspection, a lot of self scrutiny with that awful, awful playoff loss to the, Char- to the Chargers in Baltimore. Um, but that was just, you know, a launching point, I think, for, for what Lamar's been able to do. He went into the lab this summer, you know, worked on his, his uh, he worked on his ability there. He worked on his technique. He, you know, improved. Uh, the coaches have always talked about how much they thought, how highly they thought of him as a passer, someone who could see the whole field. But it was just a matter of doing small things that would lead to big results. And, you know, we're, uh, for him to have two perfect passer ratings in the first 10 games of the season, I don't think that's you know, ever been done by someone his age. So it's really just incredible to kind of watch a guy turn from an okay quarterback, passing quarterback, into you know potential MVP basically in the course of one year. Yeah, Jonas, you mentioned the Chargers' playoff loss, um, and, and obviously that's still something that uh, is easily remembered. And and I wanted to go back to training camp, and and I I wanted to say that I recall reading really wasn't you know wasn't long into training camp reading uh, your colleague uh, Mike Preston saying about how Lamar Jackson still looked kind of erratic um, throwing the ball. Right. Uh, I mean, was that what you saw? Take us back to to what you saw there. Um, and whether or not you thought this, you know, he was going to be, you know, a more efficient passer. Yeah, well, I think the thing that everyone's fixated on, you know, it's, it's easy to 
to look back and uh, kind of latch on to a certain image and the the image from I'm not sure if this was training camp or you know mandatory minute camp mm-hmm. but he was throwing a lot of ducks you know he but the ball did not look pretty coming out of his arm especially when he threw downfield um, that's not to say that he wasn't accurate it just right how much faith you want to put into a guy who is not throwing the ball in the most aerodynamically uh, sure way possible so um, but then you go to week one and he throws for, for over 300 yards and uh, two of those are you know 40 50 yard bombs to Marquise Brown that he takes to the house and both of them look like they were you know out of a passing manual so um, you know he, he's obviously a guy who is very uh, self-aware about the things that he does well the things that he does poorly and I think it's pretty instructive to you know hear what John Harbaugh said after uh, this past week's game a big win over the Texans where he said you know Lamar is just a guy who is not going to make the same mistake same mistake twice you tell him one thing and you can be pretty sure that he's going to you know do that the right way for the rest of his career so you know whether it comes down to reading defenses or having the kind of right uh you know hip drive as he's mm-hmm. throwing off that back leg um he's just a guy who seems to not you know fall into the habit of, of making bad mistakes he's cleaned up his fumbling problem for last year which was obviously a sore spot in that playoff loss as well so it, i think he's definitely come a long way from training camp but even in training camp, you know, he was having days where he was completing 60, 65 mm-hmm. percent of his passes, and that was against the you know, Ravens secondary that was even healthier than it was now. So, um, I think it's uh, you know, it, 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 he really has come a long way, but I think it was somewhat overblown. Um, just maybe you know some of those early problems in training camp because who cares how the ball looks, right. you know, as it's getting to a receiver as long as it gets to the receiver. I'm going to take you back even farther than that. How about uh, draft day uh, 2018? What went through your mind, Jonas, when the Ravens spent a first-round pick on a sort of an unknown prospect out of the University of Louisville? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously you knew of him because he was just Mr. Dynamic at Louisville. Obviously, I think he was, what, the the youngest Heisman Trophy winner, or at least one of the the few sophomore winners of that award. And, And you look at the stats, and statistically he was even better as a junior than he was a sophomore, but you know, the draft's punditry world fixates so much on accuracy, and he was a guy who, despite being in the focus of every run defense only, or he never got above 60% as his passer, and you had to wonder, well, if he's that inaccurate at the college level, uh, where people are you know, spying him, zoning him, doing whatever they have, what chance does he have of being an above-average passer in the NFL? And then you, you, know, you take him and you pluck him onto a team with an established starter in Joe Flacco, who's uh, obviously his glory days of that Super Bowl run were uh, pretty faded by that point, but no one had any doubts that this was a guy uh, who was going to lead the team for you know pretty close to the remainder of that big contract that he got. Um, you know there were doubts about whether he could perform at that similarly high level that he did, you know, in leading the team to that Super Bowl run. But I think the question about kind of finding a uh, a successor was like, well, are they going to take a third round pick? Are they going to take a fifth round pick? Are they going to take a flyer uh, on a guy, you know, in a later round? But uh, you know, the, the Ravens did it very cloak and daggery. They didn't interview Lamar Jackson at the combine. They, you know, obviously had to trade up that number thirty-two pick with with the Eagles to to get the guy um, that they want at the end of the first round. So, I mean, it, it hit us all like a like a ton of bricks. And apparently, Joe Flacco was the same way. Because I mean, I think we asked John. Uh, after they made that pick, if if they told Joe that 
uh, you know, they were, that they were going to draft another quarterback, and John said no, but he didn't feel like they had to. So it was, I mean, it was, it was just wild, and just to think that he was the what the fifth guy taken in that draft, and is by far now the, the best quarterback from that class. Um, it's, I don't think anyone outside maybe the brain trust and the Ravens front office saw that coming, and even they. You know, might be lying if they said that they did. Yeah, I've heard some of those comments. I don't know that I believe all of that stuff, but uh, it certainly has turned into a great story. And yeah, I mean, it, they did take Hayden Hurst before him. Exactly. <laughs> forget. And the, the word uh, you know revolutionary has been thrown around by Harbaugh, uh, you know, uh, in the off season and, and in training camp. Um, and I, you know, I keep thinking about that word and 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 watching this team and and how they're able to function with him as the quarterback. And I just wonder how is this offense. How would it ever be like easily duplicated? Like he's talking about it being revolutionary, but I don't know that it's really that easy to. It's ever going to be really that easy to duplicate this. Yeah, and, and that's why when people talk about Greg Roman as a potential head coaching candidate, I totally understand it. But I'm also like, yeah, where else exactly in the NFL is someone going to first empower him to, to have this kind of offense, and secondly, have a quarterback like Lamar Jackson? I mean, people talk about him being the best open field runner in the NFL for a reason, and. I mean, you know, you could maybe kind of sort of run it with someone like Kyler Murray or Deshaun Watson, mm-hmm. but those are more so guys who are, you know, using their legs to, to extend plays, to, to run you know, RPO plays, um, but they're not really using it to run Lamar Jackson, I think, is averaging like 11, 11 and a half uh, carries a game. So, I mean, obviously, you know, Greg Roman has had success with guys like Colin Kaepernick and, Ty- and Tyrod Taylor, but those weren't anywhere close to as explosive overall in terms of yards per game, points per game as this one. So it, it is definitely weird to have a basically a run-first offense that is leading the league in points that is, you know, up there with some of the all-time, you know, most efficient teams in mm-hmm. NFL history uh, in terms of, uh, you know, points per possession. Um, but, you know, teams just aren't built, defenses just aren't built to, to stop this offense and with the strength that it has with the tight ends, the the maulers that they have on the offensive line. Yep. It, it's, it's so weird that a team that this kind of limited at wide receiver can be as successful as, as it is, but maybe that's you know, where it kind of catches teams off guard. That they're, not, they're not used to having to put out their normal base defense against a, a team that can throw out you know, three really good tight ends all in the same play at once. Yeah, so they're facing defenses that are not used to seeing this sort of thing. And I think what gets lost in a lot of this is that Jackson has been playing this way for his entire life, right? And and it seems like it's really it, he's really good at avoiding contact and big shots. Like, have, how many times have you seen him take a big shot this year? I think it was probably just the one time in the Cincinnati game where he got kind of, sort of, uh, you know, pancaked in uh, near the goal line. Mm-hmm. But again, like that's that's the red zone. It, it's yeah, the fishbowl with, with everyone kind of running into each other. I, I think in the open field. He's just so athletic and so smart um, that it's very, very hard to lay the kind of knockout hit on him. And, you know, I mean, RG3 is in this Ravens locker room yeah. as a backup. Yeah, as someone who watched him growing up in D.C., um, you know, he wasn't a guy who I, I think took the worst hits, the kind of career-changing hits that he did in the open field. It was, it was I mean, that, that awful uh, playoff game against Seattle, I think it was, he was kind of crumpled up in a heap um, in the pocket. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think the Ravens know that he's a guy who's smart enough to go out of bounds when he has to, but they just count on, you know, no linebacker or no big hulking safety being able to kind of square him up and deliver the, 
kind of you know, career changing hit that that you know would be obviously awful for this franchise. There are so many examples today where coaches are trying to fit players into their scheme. I mean, they might they might say all the right things and they might say, "Hey, we're going to fit our scheme to our personnel," but but the, so rarely do they do it. Uh, but but the Ravens have done exactly that with Lamar Jackson, and that to me is one of the biggest reasons why it's working. Uh, do you, do you think John Harbaugh gets enough credit for for how he sort of turned everything over and fully committed to a quarterback that people had questions about and uh, fully committed to a quarterback that sort of plays in an un- unconventional way? Just just how about the job, the coaching job that that John Harbaugh has done? Yeah, I mean it was it was obviously a big risk that they, that they took last year doing the just offensive upheaval that they had going from from Flacco through the ball, you know, so many so many times a game, 30, 40 times if they had to to, to Lamar, who I think in that first game in week uh, ten or eleven, I think it was against Cincinnati, ran the ball like twenty five times for one hundred thirty, one hundred forty yards, whatever it was. When, when the prevailing wisdom in the NFL is, hey, if you're going to be an efficient offense, you have to pass because passing, you know, it has more yards per play. Um, you know, there's maybe a little bit more uh, variance in terms of turnovers and stuff like that. But it's it's no coincidence that the best offenses in the NFL are, are led by guys like Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady. You know, we're seven years removed from that 2,000-yard season by Adrian Peterson, which feels like two decades ago, honestly, at this point. But, you know, at that point, the Ravens knew that they had, you know, a top five defense, if not top two defense. And they just figured, hey, all we have to do is hit a certain amount of points um, and our defense can take care of the rest. And, you know, by no means was last year's offense anywhere close to this year's offense. It was, you know, kind of ugly sometimes, but they would chew up clock when, when they got in those big 12, 14 play drives. And that helped the defense. It, it, it wore down. Uh, opposing defenses and um, you know going from last season to, to this season it, it was still a little bit of a risk to be a run first offense obviously they're not running the ball 60 percent of the time but everything that they do in the passing game I think stems from what they try to do in the running game and that that's that's definitely uh, a pretty unique um, function of, of of offense in the NFL these days and I mean you mentioned you know basically asking Lamar to do the stuff that he's best at I did a story about a week ago ahead of that Houston Texans game where if you go back and watch that Clemson Louisville game for mm. 2016, that was just a shootout between those two teams. It, it, it is just stunning to see how similar not only the Ravens' offenses, but how similar te- uh, the Texans' offense was to what those two guys ran in college. And I, I think it really just speaks to the ability of you know, John Harbaugh and Greg Roman to, to realize, hey, we don't have to look like every other offense in the NFL. We can just do what our what our QBs did successfully in college and mold the rest of the offense around that. Did you see this working to the extent that it's worked, Jonas? I mean, if I had told you 10, 11 games into the season that the Ravens looked like the best team in the league and, and Lamar Jackson was probably the front runner for the MVP, I mean, what what would you have said to me if I had told you that at the start of the season? <laughs> yeah, I would not have guessed it. I mean, I don't know how high you guys were on, on the team pretty soon, but I think I, I was a little bullish on them making the playoffs. I think I had them finishing second, <clears throat> excuse me, in the, in the AFC North behind Cleveland. Um, but that was counting on, on this defense to be uh, not maybe as great as last year's uh, unit, which was, you know, finished number one overall in total defense, but still pretty good even after losing to Darius Smith, even after losing Eric Weddle, Terrell Suggs. And I, and I thought this offense would be just good enough. But, I mean, obviously, you know, we've talked a bit about that Chargers game. It, it, it is interesting that no one's tried 
the kind of uh, you know very light formation that that they did with as many DBs as they had on the field. But I think it's also because they no one you know very few teams in the league have the kind of pass rush tandem that that, that the Chargers do with Joey Bosa, Melvin Ingram, guys who can just you know wreck stuff uh, up there and make life really difficult for the kind of zone read offense that the Ravens have. But yeah, I mean, for anyone who I mean, you look at the Vegas odds, I think coming into the season, it was like a hundred to one for Lamar Jackson to win MVP. And I don't think a lot of people were willing to, to put any kind of money on that. It was only recently, you know, within the past couple of weeks that, that he's finally vaulted forward to be in that main mix with, with Russell Wilson. Um, so it, it is just extraordinary to, to see the, the, the gains that this team has made from from an offensive standpoint and um, you know for, for, for Lamar Jackson to be as good as a passer he is despite not having a great receiving core which you know people tell you is just so essential in the NFL it's, it, it's just it's honestly kind of hard to wrap your head around sometimes uh, you mentioned uh, well, I don't have the Ravens schedule sitting in front of me but um you mentioned, you know, obviously what the Chargers were able to do because they had those pass rushers. I mean, I wanted to ask you, like, what type of defense or scheme would possibly be able to slow down this this team? Um, and is and is that defense on their schedule here coming up? Yeah, I'm I'm super curious to see how they do against San Francisco. Yeah, with with the, with the, with the other Bosa brother on that team and the amount of success that they've had defensively. But I think I mean, I mean, not not to diminish at all what. LA can do uh, mm-hmm. on Monday night with, with Aaron Donald, who's just incredible. I mean, I was looking at the, the pro football focus grades earlier today. Not only is he among interior defenders, is he the number one uh, run stopper, but he's also the number one pass rusher, which just gives you a sense of just how much of a an animal, an animal, what yeah. a monster he is, as, as one guy uh, on the Ravens today said. Um, but I, I think, you know, you look at what the Ravens were kind of limited by in Pittsburgh in week five. Pittsburgh routinely has that great defensive front. Um, and I think if you have, you know, a really good front seven that knows its run fits, that has defensive ends that can beat guys um, that, that are athletic enough to maybe, you know, slow up Lamar Jackson from getting around that edge on those zone read pull plays, then you have a chance. But, um, you know, defenses are so, I think, respectful of what Lamar Jackson does as a runner that, uh, you know, he could just slice and dice you all day with play action if that's what it takes. Just, you know, take the take the handoff, take the ball, drop back, and you've got those linebackers kind of crushing down because they don't want to, you know, give up a, a big run. And then you have Mark Andrews running, running by you, you know, in, in the seam. So uh, it, it is just – it's very hard at this point to say that a team that uh, is scoring – about 34 points a game there's there's a team out there that can absolutely stop them but I think coming up with LA and San Francisco two teams with great defensive lines um, I think we'll we'll get a great sense for uh, you know a a taste of what teams might try to do um, with with how to stop this offense Uh, full disclosure here Jonas I, I, I happen to be a Browns fan and, and 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 I did, I, yeah. Well, well, you mentioned I, that's why I appreciated you mentioned you were a Redskins fan earlier because you and Josh is a Vikings fan, so we all have our war stories about uh, rooting for our football teams. I hear, but um, I, I didn't look at the Ravens as being much of a threat in the division this year. I, I already told you that I didn't see Jackson becoming this sort of quarterback and the Ravens being this sort of team. But but the Ravens' last loss was that strange forty to twenty five. Uh, week yeah. three home loss to the Browns, and 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 the more time that passes between 
uh, now in that game. It, it looks like more and more of an anomaly. What, what do you think happened in the game, uh, given the way the Brown season has unfolded in the Ravens, and, and why do you think it was such a struggle that day? Well, I think defensively that was probably their low point. Um, I mean, I think 25 points on a, you know, on a day with a normal defensive showing maybe would have been enough for, for the offense to for the Ravens to get a win. But that was a game where they were missing Brandon Williams with their big 300 whatever pound defensive tackle, and you know they were just gashed again and again by, by Nick Chubb who had that like 87 yard touchdown run or, or whatever it was. And then you know just going back and looking at the tape, they had just so many breakdowns in pass coverage with. You know, guys in zone zone coverage not trading off uh, players. Uh, you know, from, from one part of the field to the other, you had the guys getting beat on crossing uh, crossing patterns that were just completely oblivious to it, the guy kind of running behind them. Um, there was awful awful tackling from from guys that you expect to do better, like Tony Jefferson, uh, who's now lost for the season. Um, Patrick Owasso, who has kind of taken a bit of a diminished role uh, in, in the past, you know, six game winning streak basically since that loss. So. Um, I think they've they've gotten fortunate to, to have maybe guys. I think they were maybe kind of fortunate to have guys struggle in that and trigger the kind of you know rejiggering of, of the defense that's occurred. Some injuries have forced the hand, like with the Jefferson situation. I think Chuck Clark has been a vast improvement over over what uh, Tony Jefferson was giving them. He's playing a kind of dime dime linebacker role closer to the line of scrimmage, and you know they moved Brandon Carr, who is a cornerback basically all his career into the, the safety role next to Earl Thomas. So, you know, you just watch them play against against Houston on Sunday and all the DBs are pointing out their guys. Marcus Peters is helping, you know, teammates. He's barely known for, for two months at this point where to be. Um, and they just all seem like on, on like they're on the same page. And, it, you know, I th- think I wrote a story after that Cleveland game. They were on pace for, like, the most yards per play allowed in NFL history, which is just a kind of staggering thought. Um and now they're, I think, have been, you know, efficiency-wise, one of the best defenses in the NFL, if not the best, since about week seven. So, you know, you look back at that Cleveland game, it was just kind of a perfect, perfect storm of guys not being healthy, guys not doing their jobs, and then, um, you know, that great defensive front with, with Garrett uh, and, uh, and what's-his-face. Um, Sheldon Richardson. Hart, Richardson, Sheldon Richardson. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Olivier, Ber- Olivier Vernon, yeah. Right, Vernon had a sack in that game. Uh, you know, just doing a good job of, of limiting Lamar. Uh, that, that was that was not a good game for for them as a as a passing offense or as a rushing offense. So, uh, you know, I thought that Cleveland, just like Pittsburgh, you know, would have the kind of personnel to to rattle the Ravens, and I think both teams kind of did. But um, you know, only one of those teams came away with a win. Jonas, who's the uh, defensive MVP of this of this team? That's a good question. I think. It's probably Marlon Humphrey at this point. Yeah. That's only because Marcus Peters has been here only since week seven. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, Marcus Peters is, is the guy who's now uh, with, with yesterday's results, at least uh, in the Pro Bowl, because anytime you return to interceptions for touchdowns in the first 11 weeks of the season, you're going you're gonna to get some attention. But, you know, Marlon was a guy who, um, even though he did have some breakdowns that he acknowledged, like in that, like in that Cleveland game, has been probably the most reliable player in, in the defense. Um, you know, they've they've asked him to, to shadow guys. They've asked him to to uh, you know create havoc to, to make game changing plays. You know, going into, into that that game against Pittsburgh, um, he, they they needed him to to step up and 
he got burnt for a touchdown by Juju Smith-Schuster in that first or second quarter. But, you know, when they forced overtime, it was that, you know, big peanut punch that they call it, uh, that, that on Juju that forced the fumble that they turned into that, that game-winning score um, at Heinz Field. So I think that was kind of a moment for him where he felt like he'd arrived. And, you know, he, he's still a pretty young guy, but they're asking him to, to cover the, you know, the shifty, fast receivers that it seems like every team has, you know, you're – um, you know, obviously he, he covered Amendola against New England. He, they've been asked him to to cover Tyler Boyd against Cincinnati. Uh, so you know, he's just a, a very fun guy to watch. He blitzes a ton. They, he sticks his, his head out there and run defense. And um, you know, he's he's really been uh, fun to watch this year. And I think you know will probably be considered among the best five or ten cornerbacks in the league by probably the year's end. It really seems like, Jonas, that Marcus Peters has been one of the missing pieces on defense. I mean, the Ravens made a pretty bold trade to acquire him. What have you? What what changed when, when Peters came aboard? What have you noticed about the Ravens' defense since Peters has been in the lineup? I think it's just a matter of, you know, if you have one guy, if you have one new guy in there who you really feel confident in, then you, you, know, you can eliminate one weaker link that you're not entirely sure of. You know, I forget exactly what the timing was, but – in that, uh, I think week seven win against Cincinnati. Cincinnati really went after Maurice Kennedy, who is no longer on the team. And um, you know, Kennedy had some had some good plays, but they just picked on him, you know, all the time on kind of short and intermediate routes. And you know, when you have Peters, who I think came in right after that, you have a guy who can basically bump, you know, the the next guy down the down the depth chart, and that gives you a lot more flexibility with with what you have. And obviously. Um, when you have Marcus Peters, they also got Jimmy Smith back from injury, who who missed the first, uh, I guess, first eight weeks of the season. He didn't, he didn't come back until that big New England win, and you know, he's a guy who, even though he is pretty injury played, has a pretty good correlation of you know defensive success with with his availability. So you're looking at a top three cornerback pairing that's pretty impressive with Humphrey, Peters, Smith, and you look at the you know the, the safeties. Chuck Clark's been Mr. Solid. Earl Thomas is you know still pretty much a ball hawk even though no one really throws his way anyway he's you know very much a smart dependable organized leader there in the back end who's also you know willing to be a blitzer and, and stick his neck out stick his neck in there and run defense so um I, I think it was just a combination of getting marcus peters you know for for uh from los angeles for a couple of draft picks uh and then also getting jimmy smith back it's it's really eased the burden on a guy like marlon humphrey even though he's still playing like 100 percent of snaps out there so down the stretch here, what's your best guess for the week that Ray Lewis comes back to steal some of the glory here? I think it's already kind of sort of happened. With, uh, <laughs> in, in telling, I think it was Showtime, you know, where he has that inside the NFL show, you know that he, he'd love to come back for for just one game, so he could so he could lace him up with, with Lamar Jackson and play. He felt like he had you know, he's got one more good game in him or one more half season in him or whatever. But, <laughs> You know, completely ignoring the fact that he wasn't healthy enough to do dancing with the stars. <laughs> in, in that Patriots Sunday night game, he was wearing his Hall of Fame jacket on the sideline. Did Did you find it odd that he was he was actually wearing his Hall of Fame jacket in public? Uh, I, I don't don't exactly remember that. Um, I, I know, yeah, I know you might have to tread carefully here because you might run into Ray Lewis. in day to day. I don't remember if if, if like Ed Reed. 
uh, did the same. He did. He so, did. He I mean, did. I, 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 I saw. I, I saw pictures. Of, in yeah, I, I saw pictures of both of them wearing the jacket. But I'm like, you don't wear your Hall of Fame jacket out in public. It's just something like you keep in your closet and, and say that you have it. So you wear it right. at the you wear it at the other Hall of Fame inductions. Yeah. Yeah, you wear you wear it when the occasion presents itself, like at the other Hall of Fame inductions or stuff. You don't actually wear it just just when you know you're going to be seen on TV and stuff like that. So right, it's um, kind of like you know wearing your Super Bowl ring out to a fancy dinner or something. Right, it, it, exactly. So uh, you're you're a young guy, Jonas. Right, you graduated from Maryland in uh, 2012. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. I'm I'm curious because the journalism industry was changing so much, probably even before you got into college. Uh, just curious why you decided to choose his career path and, and, and what made you want to be a sports writer? Uh, it, it was just something that I've kind of been on a path for since probably, probably middle school. Um, I think in middle school, uh, eighth grade, we did, you know, just had this big interdisciplinary project where you could really, uh, choose whatever you wanted to do. And, you know, for some reason I decided to do, uh, kind of like a sports magazine, I um, mean, you know, obviously, I've gotten ESPN magazine delivered. You know, growing up all my life, I played sports growing up. I consumed the Washington Post sports coverage growing up, uh, and then tenth grade at Montgomery Blair High School in Silver Spring. You know, I did the JV Journal, which was kind of a a way to to make yourself known um, a year ahead of the student newspaper applications at Blair. We've got a, a great student newspaper, Silver Chips. You know, a national award winner many times over. Um, so, you know, from that, uh, from JV Journal, I did Silver Chips, um, the print newspaper side of things there, uh, you know, did, did, pre- did decently well there as a, as a student journalist. Um, and it was just something that, you know, I felt I really enjoyed doing. I felt like I was competent at doing it uh, and, you know, went on to Maryland, the journalism school there, did the Diamondback, the student newspaper, and, you know, was able to, to parlay the experiences that I had. Um, at the at the Baltimore Sun as an intern there into a job there and you know, even though I'm a sports writer right now I actually started as a as a copy editor at the at the Sun and was able to just kind of you mean it wasn't all the, myself with, with a couple of writing gigs here and there and you mean it wasn't all the stories about how rich uh, it wasn't all the stories about how rich you would get being a sports writer and how awesome <laughs> your schedule would be and all those great stories no no I mean I, I, I knew you know it's it is a, a steady drumbeat of, of people telling you in journalism school that, hey, this is a, you know, a tough business. Um, I think I was interning at the Sun uh, in 2011 or so, and that, that was right around when they had just the, the first real kind of bloodshed, uh, bloodletting blood there. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, cutting guys who were in these far-flung national posts that, you know, right now seems kind of just unbelievable. Like, you know, wasn't that long ago. That the sun had correspondence in places like you know Korea and, sure. and, and and stuff like that and you know very big, very big picture um, very prominent roles uh, you know in places outside outside Maryland and the, and the district but you know it's it's what I enjoy doing it's it's really fun to to cover this team it's um it's a lot of great guys on the beat so every day it's like seeing your friends uh, and you know that's that's really just the what the, the enjoyment that I've taken out of the position from. From high school to college to, to, to now the Baltimore Sun, it just um, you know feels like you're uh, doing a really really cool thing with a lot of really really cool people, and you know you, you just hope that the the money will kind of take care of itself at some point. 
we're we're able to uh, to use a, a lot of the content from the Baltimore Sun, which is great for us. Um, and we oftentimes run Mike Preston's columns. I wanted to ask you about him because he's like a really sure. he's a really critical guy about this team. He's also incredibly knowledgeable. Um, I think he played at Towson uh, Towson State when it was Towson State back in the day as an, right. as a lineman. Um, wh- what do you see with him? Uh, you know, he, he like I said, he is he is really critical. Obviously, that's his job. But um, what's it like? You know, for him to go back into the locker room after you know some of these critical pieces he's written. And I, I give him credit for doing that yeah. too. Yeah, I, mean, I think people just know that he I mean, he's covered more games, more Ravens games than probably anyone in the history of the beat, not just at the Baltimore Sun, but but anywhere. I think it wasn't until maybe last year uh, that he actually he missed a Ravens road game, and that was for you know, for personal family reasons. But um, you know, he, he he just knows everyone in the organization. He uh, people know you know who Mike Preston is. I mean, you saw yeah. Usher um, during the Ed Reed uh, yeah. induction ceremony. You know, I think it was. Uh, pretty, I don't think it was Susie Culver. Uh, pretty, pretty exactly who it was, but you know, they they showed him uh, a column headline that Mike had written back in the day uh, when Ed Reed was drafted, where <laughs> right. Preston, got, you know, bless his soul, basically was saying like. Did they draft an accountant or did they draft draft a safety with a name like Ed Reed? <laughs> and you know, Ed Reed just kind of, you know, he obviously remembered. He said, "Good old Mike Preston." And you know, people, I think, unfairly took that to mean to be a shot against Mike Preston. Right. You know, like that they saw that Ed Reed was was just you know kind of laughing at the absurdity of it all. But obviously, you you wouldn't kind of talk about someone in that manner if you didn't have at least a, a little bit of affection and respect for him um so you know he, he's obviously been with the, a lot of these guys who've been in baltimore for, for a while for as long as their career and uh, i think that they respect you know the the commitment that he has to the job the, the insight that he has you know um he obviously has some some hot takes probably as they, as they call it nowadays but it, it's grounded in a, a base of football knowledge that i think you know joe fan out there just is never able to experience you know you played college football and he was a really good player on a really good Towson team uh, back like you know like you said when it was Towson State right um so I, I think you know he's he's kind of set in some of his ways but uh he's I think pretty pretty invigorated by, by what the Ravens are doing right now and it's, it's fun to see it's a fun to read his takes every week so have you booked your hotel room for Miami and your flight for Miami and in the Super Bowl Jonas did you mention it because obviously after week one uh oh! Can you hear us? I hear it in uh, in no time, but uh, yeah, I, it'll be it'll be if we back here. I tell you what, I, I'm not going to turn down an opportunity to go to Miami in in early February. Uh, <laughs> Certainly not. It'll be like five degrees <laughs> back back here. I, I, hope so. that the, I hope that the sun. I hope that I'm still employed by the sun because that sounds like a nice vacation. Yeah, exactly. Well. Uh, hey, Jonas, uh, th- I really want to thank you uh, for doing this. And uh, just for the record, you're a sports writer for the same reason that Josh and I are, because it's a labor of love. I mean, we love doing it. We love sports. We love telling these stories. So uh, so keep on doing what you're doing, man. You do a great job covering the team. And, and uh, send us a postcard uh, from, from Miami uh, <laughs> when, when you're down there uh, covering the Ravens. So uh, Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's uh, Jonas Schaefer. Uh, Ravens beat writer for the uh, Baltimore Sun. So uh, another great guest. We've had some really good luck, good luck with, uh, with guests. And, 
Yeah, I mean, here, here we are with the Ravens. Uh, you, I, I sensed they were no threat at the start of the season. Then you start to say, here we go. They, they, they look good again. And, and now every, every, they're at the top of everyone's power rankings. Yeah, I mean, I, don't, so, I, think, I think I picked the Browns to win the division. I can't remember yeah, if you I did. We, I think we all did, yeah. Yeah, but I, I, I was also like, you know, the Ravens are definitely going to be in the, you know, in, the, in the wild card hunt. I could see this being a team that, you know, shocks people. I think I said something like that. I, I, hope, I hope I'm getting that right. Um, so I mean, really, week to week, it's it's kind of amazing to see what they're doing. They just I didn't watch a lot. I get to see a lot of that that Texans game, but my dad, you were watching the Vikings, yeah, my, yeah. My dad was he's a Ravens fan, and he was just you know he, he was talking about how amazing it was just to see them dismantled um, the Texans. So. Now there was very early in the game a pass a clear pass interference oh, by Mar- by yeah. Marlon Humphrey on. DeAndre Hopkins, very yeah. early, uh, the score. It might have been scoreless, or, yeah. or the Texans it was scoreless were, for a while, right? Um, and that would have put the ball on the one yard line for the Texans. And if the Texans score first, the whole complexion of the game might change. Amazingly, they reviewed this pass interference, which uh, DeAndre Hopkins was contacted about three different times before the ball arrived, and and they upheld the call that there was no pass interference. It was like. I'm, I'm watching this. I'm like, what's the point of having the pass interference rule if you're never going to overturn a call, especially one as egregious as that? This? And that, I think that one, pro, I mean, it's, it wasn't as bad or of the magnitude as the one that happened in the NFC Championship game, obviously, but it was blatant. Right. And that's what we're talking about here, it, right? It, and they reviewed it. That's right. what should be overturned. That was like a classic example of what should be overturned, if, if and it wasn't. Pass interference, there's no, pa- there's no so, such thing as pass interference. I, I just don't get it. I, I don't understand why the NFL at this point just doesn't come out. And I think I even said this a few weeks ago and say, we screwed up. We're doing away with this one-year test, uh, test run. Uh, they just need to do which, that. Which was an overreaction in the first place. The Saints fans belly aching about their, their horrible call in, yeah. in, in the championship game. So. Hopefully they get rid of get rid of this rule. I don't like the fact that you could challenge something that wasn't called pass interference. And wait, we have a second look at it, and suddenly it is pass interference. Like the whole rule is stinks. And if you're not going to overturn something like that, which, ha- which happened with Humphreys and DeAndre Hopkins, like what's the point of what's the point of having, exactly. the, having the rule at all? So, all right, uh, time now for my bad look of the week, <laughs> and. Uh, since I have a segment called Greg's Bad Look of the Week, it's, it's, it's a darn good thing that I'm a Browns fan. Because they, <laughs> Every week they, it's they, a Browns be, take. Because they provide me endless sources of material uh, for, for bad looks of the week. And, and, and the bad look for this week, we didn't get to do it last week, of course, was Miles Garrett. Like, there's eight seconds to go in the game. You're nope. winning. Why are you getting into a scuffle of any sort with Mason Rudolph, who is truly a backup quarterback turned starter due to a – due to the injury to Ben Roethlisberger, but why are you getting into a scuffle of any sort with a backup quarterback in a game you were going to win? It's a huge win. The season is alive again. I mean, your playoff hopes are alive again. Why are you getting involved with this in the first place? He was overzealous on a, on a game-ending sack. Mason Rudolph, understandably, to some degree, came back at him, and it uh, devolved into the situation where Miles Garrett is suddenly swinging a weapon uh, Mason Rudolph's helmet at Mason Rudolph's head and connecting with the six-pound helmet to Mason Rudolph's skull. He's lucky he didn't knock him out, bust his head open, or... or could have been a know, really or, or ugly scene. Him. It was ugly enough, but it could have been incredibly right. ugly. It could have been an incredibly damaging night to right. that league. So it's so it's a good night for the Browns. Their season's back on. They have a huge win. 
over the rival Steelers. Uh, believe it or not, it's the first time as an expansion team they've beaten the Ravens and Steelers in the same season, which is ludicrous in itself considering they're <laughs> division rivals with these teams. So it's like just there's eight seconds to go. You don't even need to let Mason Rudolph throw his pat. You don't even need to sack him. Um, just get get off the field, enjoy your win, and yeah. And, and just be done with it. And I, now he's gone for the season. I would and, take it even a step further. I've seen a lot of times at the end, that game was over, right? They were up by two touchdowns, right? right? And the Steelers couldn't do a thing all night. They, they, okay. they scored their one touchdown because the Browns marched him down the field with like 60 or 70 yards of penalties. My point is, I, if I'm Freddie Kitchens and I'm in that situation, and, I, and, I've, and I've said the same thing about Mike Zimmer in some of these games where the Vikings have been up by two, three scores in the last four minutes of a game, I'm getting – Miles Garrett off the field. Right. I'm getting uh, Sheldon Richardson off the field, and all of these, you know, these Im- high impact starting players, these star players that they have. That dr- drive meant absolutely nothing to that game. The game was over. He could have been on the on the bench, you know, celebrating the win with his buddies. Instead, he's having his entire season ended by a you know a, an idiotic right. uh, display that he couldn't couldn't uh, resist and, and this is this is so out of character for him this is the guy that likes dinosaurs and openly talks about his love of dinosaurs right. and he's a real mild-mannered almost shy really quiet guy didn't some guy punch him and he didn't even retaliate right. some guy right. in public yes yeah, some guy punched him in the face in public and he he did turn the other cheek in, in that situation <laughs> literally yeah and, and he, he did not retaliate so this is so out of character and, and why he's letting mason rudolph get under his skin like this now I mean, Mason Rudolph is hardly a innocent bystander in all of this. Um, he's got Miles Ge- so Garrett sacks him. He's a little overzealous with the sack, and Garrett's been called for a number of roughing the passer penalties. So this is like sort of a thing with Miles Garrett with these sacks. He's he's a little too aggressive with them sometimes. So Mason Rudolph has him by the face mask before he has before Miles has Rudolph's face mask. Um, Rudolph starts kicking at Garrett, I guess, to get him off of him. But these kicks are landing in some pretty sensitive uh, places, too. Allegedly, there's racial slurs being hurled by Rudolph. And if you watch, David DeCastro of the Steelers has the players separated. Mm -hmm. This thing is about to die. It's about two seconds away from dying. But then Mason Rudolph comes back at Miles Garrett. He lunges at Miles Garrett, and he basically runs right into getting clubbed in into the head with it, with his own helmet. So Mason Rudolph, he sort of reignited the whole thing um, when he came back at Miles Garrett. But that doesn't entitle him to get whacked in the head with his own helmet. And Miles Garrett, you have to control yourself better, better obviously in that situation. So it's just another. Only the Browns could turn a, a great win into. Well, certainly felt like a loss. So who do they have? Who's up this week for them? Uh, Miami. So it's, it's okay. So they're, they're Scott, they have two games left with the winless Bengals. They have yeah. a game with the Cardinals. They could win. They have to play the Ravens and Steelers again, and the, the, it'll be tough to win either one of those games. But but the, their season's back on, and and it was a great win. They would have had ten days to to enjoy this win, but instead, all we've been talking about for the last week is this Miles Garrett fiasco, and it's just bizarre and in the browns you, you mentioned freddie kitchens they lead the league in penalties they have guys like o- odell beckham and jarvis landry wearing cleats that have to be changed at halftime clown cleats 
I mean, just the, just the lack of composure and the lack of discipline on the team certainly falls back on the coaching staff. Yeah, I mean, and this is a group of guys that really was brought together this year. Right? There's a lot of new guys right. on this team. So, I mean, I think maybe that's getting lost in, in, in this a little bit. And it's hard to build, you know, cohesion and chemistry in less than a year when you're bringing all these new guys in. So right. maybe that's something that's going on. And they also have some really strong personalities, obviously, in the right. mix. Yeah, and, and Freddie Kitchens is struggling as a first-year coach. But – um but man, bad, bad luck of the week. The Browns have been like my bad luck of All the right. week for like a month running here. All right, well, I got a good look, and I'm going with my team, who which came back from the dead. Like I, I left the house. I had to go run an errand really quick in the afternoon on Sunday, and I decided to do it literally right at the end of the first half of that game because it was it was over. The Vikings game against the Broncos was over. At, right at halftime, they were losing twenty to nothing. It could have been worse because they turned the ball over on a on a kickoff return right before the half when they got the ball back, and it could have been twenty three to nothing. It could have been it could have been twenty seven to nothing. Um, Andrew Sandejo got a got an interception right before the end of the half to stop Denver from scoring again. And, and, and as as that was happening, I was thinking we were bonded in our football brotherhood again because yeah, playing a turd because Brandon Allen had never yeah he had never even ever appeared in an NFL game before he makes his first start against the Browns two weeks ago. And of course looks, looks great. And looks yeah. like he's been playing the position for 10 years and, and a guy that has never appeared in an NFL game before at the age of 27 is suddenly beating the Browns. And now it was the second game against the Vikings, and he's, he's sort oh, of yeah. he's, he's sort of like dicing up the Vikings. Well, and too. and and I the whole time I'm watching, I'm like the, the Achilles heel of this team, and, and the Vikings are are a good team, uh, but their Achilles heel is their pass defense of all things because of their coach Mike Zimmer is a def- is at heart a defensive backs coach, which is which is insane to think about that their defensive backfield is so terrible, but they are like they they give up deep shots right and left. Xavier Rhodes is the worst cornerback in the league at this point. He's being paid huge sums of yeah, money to throw, stop no one. You would say you would throw on him every play. I would. I, if I was an offensive coordinator, I would throw at whoever was running routes against Xavier Rhodes on every single play unless he was being doubled. Um, but anyway, so the good look is that somehow the Vikings got their act together. They started to run a hurry-up offense in the second half. And damned if they didn't score a touchdown on every second half possession. Kirk Cousins was went out of his mind, and I'm gonna have to pull him off the boat here, you know, sooner or later. Save I him, threw him, th- throw him a life vest. I, I throw him, yeah, I'm throwing him a life, throwing him a life vest because he was throwing the throwing darts all over the place. Um, it was incredible to watch. Denver screwed up a lot. They made a lot of dumb. They had a lot of dumb decisions in the second half of that game that helped the Vikings out. So, so it's not all on the Vikings and playing terrific. Denver but collapsed. Yeah, they collapsed for sure. But at the same time, like, you know, Cousins was making the throws. Um, they, they, they figured out an answer to, uh, to, to what Denver was doing. They ran this hurry up. It was uh, a, a nail-biter down, down to the very end. Um, there were three plays in the end zone because Zimmer called a timeout with 10 seconds to go when it looked like Denver was going to they, – they, they were unorganized. They were trying to get up to the line of scrimmage and run, like, one last play. As the clock's running, and Zimmer called a timeout to stop the clock with ten seconds left, which essentially gave them two extra shots in the end zone from like the four yard line. I'm losing what little hair I have. I'm like pulling it out because I thought for sure they were just going to throw it at Xavier right. Rhodes' receiver and right. complete a touchdown pass, and somehow they pulled it off. And it was uh, my heart was like jumping out of my out of my throat here. And it was it was a pretty fun win to watch. Isn't it funny, my football brother, that the worst part of the Vikings is their defensive backfield and they are coached. Yeah. by a defensive backs coach right 
and the Browns are coached by a running, running a former running backs coach who apparently is forgets, allergic and forgets refu- they have running backs. Refuses to run the ball. I mean, forgets they have like two awesome running backs, right? right? Exactly. So, so my team's coached by the running running back coach that can't run. And your team is coached by the defensive backs coach they can't cover. <laughs> I mean, it's so great being a Browns and a Vikings fan. Just the, just the joy uh, it brings us every football Sunday. Terrific. So. I love them. Yeah. Uh, who are you throwing on the boat this week? Oh, yeah. So uh, I just saw this this afternoon on Twitter. It was a clip from a youth baseball game somewhere, God knows where, in the United States. I don't even know what the age group was. Looks like an official, uh, an umpire behind the plate was getting ridiculed, was getting heckled by some adults who were in the stands. And uh, he turned around and yelled at him. I think they yelled some more choice words at him. And he said, you know what? Peace. I'm out of here. He took his, took, took his equipment with him, walked off the field, and said, I'm not putting up with this, and left. And of course, 16-year-old Josh Smith applauded wildly. Absolutely. I was a 16-year-old kid who was a youth baseball umpire, and I took abuse from like adults. And I, I write about it. I still think about it. And whenever I see stuff like this, it takes me back to that. And I will always be an advocate advocate for these people who are giving up their free time and volunteering and jumping in and trying to help you know these kids play the game of baseball and learn about the game of baseball. And people like that should not be heckled. They should not be taking crap from other stupid, immature adults who are sitting there at their kids' games. Like, get over yourselves, people. You know, this is a guy who's trying to help out. Um, and so I saw He's some people volunteering or making like five, 50 bucks a game or 20 bucks yeah. a game or something like yeah. that. So, so. I, and I heard these people heckling him and calling him names and telling him, you know, he was a jerk and whatever. It's like anybody who said anything bad about that guy should go on the boat they should and be also sent be away. Forced, they should also be forced to umpire a game. I, ex- and, I've and, always and, said and, that. And, 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 and take the abuse themselves. I've, al- I've always so. said that. I've always said that if you not, not necessarily if you respect it, that, that you can't do that. But if you want to coach youth sports at any level, you should also be required to officiate because you would see it from that perspective. Now, these weren't coaches who were getting on the guy. The fans were. But my point is, is the same, really, uh, because you would see it, you would see it in a different way. You have to be one just, just so you can appreciate yeah. how difficult that job is. Right. So that's, so, uh, that's who I'm throwing on the boat. So I have a question. Is, is Roger Goodell, of all people, <laughs> on, on, on the boat? I, I don't think he is. I don't think he is. Well, he is now. Because interesting. Uh, the NFL announced its uh, discipline for Miles Garrett. Right. And they have upheld the indefinite suspension. And there was some question whether it could be an indefinite spe- suspension based on the collective bargaining agreement. Um, and Albert Hainsworth, who stomped on a guy's head, he got five games. And so there's a bit of a precedent for a wild act like this before. And, and can the NFL get away with uh, indefinite suspension? Well, Garrett made his... Uh, appeal yesterday in new york he had like a two-hour hearing with james thrash who i guess is the nfl former redskin uh, james right thrash. uh and former eagle i believe yes. too um who's the liaison that handles these matters for the nfl and, and garrett's appeal was denied his indefinite suspension was upheld and what this is is this is the nfl chickening out of putting a number on garrett's suspension they don't want to say six games and have some mob come after them on social media or whatever saying, oh, that's too lenient, it's not enough games. So by, by, by doing this gray indefinite suspension thing, they, they could basically ward off any sort of public scorn or public reaction because they could, it could go one of two ways. They could say he's suspended 10 games and everyone hammers them saying that's way too harsh, they've gone overboard. Or if they give them like four to six games, you could have a lot of people saying not enough. So this, indef- in, this indefinite suspensions 
a really convenient excuse um, uh, for for them just to sort of toe the line there and 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 not and avoid any public criticism. I, you don't see this going into next year. I don't. I I, I think the fair suspension would be the rest of this season. They have six games left. They have a chance to make the playoffs. If they make the playoffs, he should be out of those games. Uh, so it could be a, a few more games if, in the event they make the playoffs. But, yeah, I, I think what's going to happen here is the season will end. He'll have some hearing with Roger Goodell in February or March or whatever, and he'll be reinstated. But And by that time, everyone will have moved on exactly. to, to, to different things. There's just not enough time has passed since – the end since this incident occurred, which is basically a week ago uh, tonight, uh, Thursday. So that, that that's why the NFL is chickening out and putting a number. They get to su- supposedly drop the hammer on Garrett without actually putting a number on it. So uh, I also want to throw Goodell on the boat for this dog and pony show they did with Colin Kaepernick last week. Oh my goodness! And like why that that, that, that suddenly came out of the blue. And, and I think Jay Z suggested it or something right, like, like that. Like all of a sudden, the NFL is saying, "Hey, let's do a workout for Colin Kaepernick uh, to avoid the appearance that hey, they're blackballing him." It's like, "Hey, look, we're, we've, we're asking him to work out. We want teams to, to sign him. We're encouraging this opportunity." Well, there were a couple of waivers involved. One, which uh, was that the media was barred from this thing, and that's the reason why it got moved from the Atlanta Falcons stadium, I believe where it was originally going to be held and run by former Browns coach, Hugh Jackson to this local high school. Uh, and I think 25 teams were going to come to the stadium and watch some Kaepernick of them just said, out. Yeah, I'm out of here. Yeah. Most of them did. I, I think there was like six teams represented yeah. at this high school. So Cap and, and, and it was fully open to the media at the high school. Everything could be filmed, but there were also rumors of a waiver. They wanted him to sign saying he won't, take any legal action against the NFL if he never gets back into the league. So the whole thing came out of left field. It was random. It's like, hey, we're doing this workout for Colin Kaepernick. Most NFL teams work out players on Tuesday. So if they were truly serious about working Colin Kaepernick out, it would have been on a Tuesday instead of a Saturday when teams are getting ready for games and might have other things going on. So so both the Garrett, sort of the chickening out of putting a number on Garrett's suspension and in this whole Colin Kaepernick fiasco, I'm throwing Roger yeah. Goodell long overdue uh, onto the boat. Yeah, let me say so. a couple of things about Kaepernick. Uh, he's not – like, it's a shame. But he's He could play in the league. He could play in the league right now. Uh, but he's not He's not going to be, be signed by anyone. It's just not going to happen. The, the, yeah, it just it's like the Tebow situation. There's too much stuff yeah. that comes along with him. It, yeah, And especially because what have we seen this year? We've seen a bunch of starting quarterbacks go down, and we've seen a bunch of backups come in. And what if those backups done? They've played pretty damn well, like across the league. You're seeing like Kyle, Kyle Allen, yeah, right. There's some real. It seems like there's some real depth at this position. I don't want to say it's because the league is it's easier to play quarterback than it ever has been. When it it sort of is in some ways, but these kids, these young guys that are coming in that are backup quarterbacks. A lot of them can play in the NFL now just because of the way the game has evolved and like the amount of time that they've spent playing quarterback, um, the way the game is being played now. So like you have a really high level of play at that position. And I'm sorry, but you're just not gonna you're not gonna take a flyer on Colin Kaepernick and and, and add that drama and all of that yeah, stuff it would become an instant, to your it team. Would, it would become an instant media if you service, don't have right? to. Yeah, like yeah. they'd have to have the press conference at like in like the field house uh, because there'd be so many people. At, at, yeah. At, 
So and plus the guy was sort of becoming a marginal quarterback, and now he's been out of the league three years. So so what are you even getting? Uh, yeah, if, but if you, I, I agree. But you with get you. the whole I, Lamar I, Jackson I, phenomenon. Like right. everybody sees what he's doing, and that was that was what that's the way Colin Kaepernick played. I've always agreed with he's better than a lot of the backup quarterbacks in the league. But 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 now he's been out of football for three years, so so you factor that. Uh, in, I don't think in, that's in as much of a, a factor because yeah. he is he's still only thirty two years old, which really by quarterback standards is pri- is prime time. Right. So yeah, but he's but that besides the point, he's not going to play again in the NFL. I I would be stunned if if somebody even took a flyer on him next year. Right. Yeah. And, and the longer the time passes, the more unlikely it gets. Yeah. So. Uh, did you have a scene or a to be seen? Um, I did have a, I had a scene. It was it's not sports related though. Uh, I found myself on my random midweek nights off watching. There, we, I get this channel on Directv now called the Pop Channel, and they play like every week. It's I not some like spicy. Uh, what are you talking about, Greg? Where are you going, man? Uh, channel is it? No, it's not. It's they play a ER marathon every weeknight. Every weeknight. So you got George Clooney. Yeah, man. Saving lives. Like, I, I don't know if you were a freak about ER the way I was when I was in high school. Like, we're talking mid 90s. Oh, my God. Like, I would, it was on Thursday nights at 10 o'clock. If I'd be out with my friends or whatever when I had my license, I would, I had to come home by 10 o'clock to watch ER because that's how much I was into that show. Man, I, I think I've watched like eight or 10 hours of ER over my last like three nights off because I just can't stop watching it. Is your passion for ER greater or is your wife's passion for 90210? Ooh, she likes ER too. Um, Man, that's a good question. Uh, She might have me beat on that with 90210. But man, I I just am really enjoying it, and and I forgot like how great of a show that was. Are they still, um, are they still doing that nine hundred two one zero like remake? I don't know. Or whatever. I, I we heard, we I watched heard, one I episode. Heard, I haven't heard like anything about that. Yeah, we watched one episode. It was okay, but it wasn't something it, I would. It set would work my... better if they were actually like Brandon Walsh and it would if like today not like, like right. not like them spoofing their characters right and that's themselves. what it is right. it's a giant spoof right but uh yeah but like my, so one of my favorite characters from ER was Juliana Margulies's character she had played a nurse she i just loved her back then she went on to become uh the star in uh the good wife which is an amazing show too so um i just i miss her i miss seeing her in shows so it's been it's been fun, man. I, I I can't like I just can't turn it off. I watched four episodes of it last what, night. What's it on? Pop. Pop. Yeah, I don't even know what I, that I, is. I've heard of it. I've heard of it before, but I can't say I've, I can't yeah. remember the one thing I've watched on Pop. Right. Well, you would before. so you would think like when well, my night yeah. off, I'd be watching uh, oh, yeah. the, the the Clippers and whoever they played last night, the Celtics. No, but, I, I know you like to get no. away from sports, and that's you're probably much healthier than me. And, <laughs> I don't in that know. respect because you you you're able to get away from it more easily than I can. So what do you got? Uh, a couple of things. This is not my senior two be seen but did you see that antonio brown suddenly apologized to the new england Patriots? Where, where did that come from right like, i can't well I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna i might answer your question here in a second well apparently uh former nfl tight end christian fourier who now works for wei up in boston he used to be, he, he used to be a patriot right right uh he, a former tight end i think he played for a couple teams uh, he's a decent player n- never not a regular pro bowl or anything like that but but he's reporting that the patriots have apparently kicked the tires on bringing Antonio Brown back. Oh. So, so, hmm. So Antonio Brown offers a sudden apology to the Patriots. And now all of a sudden these reports come out where the Patriots who are having issues at receiver because Mohamed Sanu's hurt. I think Philip Dorsett's uh, been, been hurt too. Like they're sort of thin at the position and, and they're not really, it's not even a great position group for them anyway, outside of Julian Edelman. Um, they're, they're potentially 
thinking about maybe bringing Antonio and Brown back. Enough time so. seems to have passed where everyone kind of probably forgets why they cut him in the first place, which is because some woman accused him of whatever it was. Right. Uh, now he's countersuing apparently. Right. So that saga drags on. And, and I'd be right. stunned if the Patriots brought him back for that. very Because, the, again, it's another big... And Gronk's not coming back it, either. It's another P, big PR hit. The Patriots are really... I mean, against a team that... If you have to pass against them or a team that relies heavily on passing, I think you'd struggle. The Patriots' pass defense is pretty good. Yeah. But outside of that, their run defense is bad. And their offense is pretty Middling. underwhelming Middling. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly like you have edelman and and that's about it i'm still gonna stand by like look we're gonna get the playoffs they'll get the playoffs they will figure out some way to ring up 30 points on somebody you know in that first home they'll, they'll, and they'll, they'll have their buy they'll, they'll do just enough yeah they'll have their buy then they'll have their home game in foxborough and they'll bring up 30 points whenever the hell well, it is and they'll be in the amc championship they're gonna game. play the dolphins again i probably they're gonna play the, i mean they're, they're gonna play their division opponent they get buffalo at home um so the, yeah they'll win enough games to get a bye and they'll find a way to win that as long as it's not against the ravens they'll find yeah a way to, it will probably they'll, they'll find a way to win that first game but, but then i think they're in trouble again because the ravens match up so the ravens do everything well that the patriots don't do well and 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 the, and the ravens defense has improved to the point where they could stymie yeah. the, the new england offense so um so i doubt they would bring antonio brown back but but it's something it's something to keep an eye on anyway uh, my actual uh, scene or to be seen is, have you seen what Luka Doncic of the uh, yes. Dallas Mavericks uh, is, is doing? Uh, At age what? 19? Age I want to say 20. He's 20 years old. So not, he can't even legally drink yet. Uh, he's a 20-year-old from... Uh, sort of uh, like Ed, basketball's version of Juan Soto. Right, right Slovenia. He's, he's Slovenian. And uh, I believe it was, la- it was over the weekend or, or close to the weekend. Uh, he scored 42 points. Uh, to go with 12 assists and 11 rebounds and a 117-110 win over the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, that made him the first player other than LeBron James in NBA history. Only two guys have done it. Doncic is now, is now one of them. Uh, to score 40 points is part of a triple-double effort. And then Wednesday night, depending That can't on, be true. Like James Harden never did that or Russell Westbrook never did that? Not 40 points in a triple-double. Wow. So, uh, Doncic and uh, LeBron are, are it, and then Wednesday night of, of this week against the Golden State Warriors in a, in a in a completely blowout win over the team formerly known as the Warriors. Right. It seems Doncic goes for thirty five points, ten rebounds, and eleven assists, and he did it all in just twenty five minutes. Uh, it's the least amount of time ever to record a thirty point triple double, according to the Elias Sports Bureau. So imagine if the guy played like. 40 minutes in a game how, how many how many points he, he might have scored so, so well i was watching the dan patrick show this morning and they were talking uh for a long stretch about his and the mvp candidacy eventually and and right. whether or not he would be can the, the youngest be, yeah can the mavericks be good enough for long enough to, to keep him right in the conversation but i think they yeah. were saying that he would be the youngest mvp in any league in professional sports, if he were were, were right. to pull that off, well, he was basically turning pro like at age thirteen or whatever. He was he was playing for these high level, under sixteen team like national teams in Spain at, at the age of thirteen. He was playing like U sixteen basketball, so he's been this prodigy and this phenom for 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 almost, his, a, de- for for almost a decade his, now. Yeah. I mean, twenty years old, and he's he's and that was seven years ago. Obviously, he was thirteen. What's he? So. Isn't he like seven feet tall? He's not. I don't think not he's quite. Not quite seven feet, but um, I mean, 
he's 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 white. I mean, it, it's it's part of the conversation when you talk about that. I mean, yeah. Larry, Larry Bird's known as, as being a great white basketball player. I mean, uh, I, I, not that not that that matters, but but I mean, it's when when you think it of makes great him basketball more players, right? Yeah, for more, more notoriety, almost. Right, yeah, you know? sh- sure, right. Um, because most of the great basketball players in league history are, are African American, so. Um, so and, and Dirk Nowitzki just recently retired. So the Mavericks have gotten lucky that that, that this kid has come along and, and become one of the real stars in the league. And he it it, it almost seems unusual when he doesn't have a triple double now. Um, so to have thirty five, ten, and eleven, twenty five minutes, twenty five minutes. I mean that that's doing doing work, uh, <laughs> as they say. Messed around, right? He messed around and got a triple double. And uh, 42, 11, and 12 against the Spurs. The Spurs are suddenly terrible. Uh, yeah. they've, they've lost seven in a row, and, and they look like one of the worst teams in the league. So so uh, Luka Doncic of the Dallas Mavericks, if you get a chance to check out the Mavericks on TV, uh, do so because he's uh, one of the most exciting young players in the league. So that is my uh, uh, scene or to be seen. Uh, thanks again to uh, Jonas Schaefer of the Baltimore Sun for coming on to Talk about the Ravens and uh, to Graham Cullen for producing. Uh, yep. Did we did we hit it all? I think we did. All right. Glad to, be, to be glad to be back. Good to be back. Uh, we'll we'll try and make our interruptions fewer and far between. Uh, we'll try and maybe do a do a Thanksgiving episode of some sort uh, next week. So until then, this has been just another sports podcast. <laughs>